The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. geeks and welcome to the valentine's day special we're pulling at your bat heartstrings with tonight's movie from 1993 it's batman mask of the phantasm is love in the air for bruce wayne or will an unexpected twist in the form of a caped skeleton with a hook for an arm get in the way forever wishing that i could drive the sweet batman the animated series batmobile i'm michael and once again wondering why they couldn't squeeze the boy wonder into this i'm steven (laughs) and offering the friendly warning that you can't be too careful with these weirdos around i'm adam and joining us today is a very special guest his background in cartooning and animation makes him the perfect partner in crime please welcome eric johnson Oh, are, are we talking about the animated Batman? Shoot, I came here to talk about those OnStar commercials. Hang on, let me study up real quick. I like those OnStar commercials with the Batmobile. I'm not <laughs> they were lie. neat. They were neat. And and Booger played Joker. Yes, city. <laughs> So first, let's talk a little bit about the actual animated series that spawned this movie that, to my knowledge, was the first, like, animated Batman movie that actually went into theaters. Definitely. Yes. So Batman the Animated Series premiered on the Fox Network in September of 92 on the heels of Batman Returns, which got a lot of complaints for how adult-themed it was. The animated series drew big inspiration from the Max Fleischer Superman cartoons, as well as Burton's Batman movies. It was telling complex Batman stories for the after-school crowd and really the masterwork of writer Paul Dini and artist Bruce Timm and Eric Radomski. 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 So, okay, everybody who's anybody always loves Batman the Animated Series. If you don't, I find that hard to believe. I feel like you're, you know, like a hipster just finding to be anti-something just because. But for me, uh, there's so many great episodes, but like, I'm curious, what are some of your guys' favorite episodes? Eric, you go first. You're our guest. All right. Well, I grew up with reruns of Batman the Animated Series after school on the Cartoon Network around the late 90s, start of the early 2000s, and it was easily one of my favorite shows for the limited time I was allowed to watch TV before having to get my homework done. The style of the show was easily influential on my own work. The character designs were fairly simplistic compared to the over-rendered musculature of superhero cartoons of the time, like Spider-Man or the X-Men, but that simplicity gave the characters more fluid movement. Uh, Bruce Timm's art was the first time I recognized the influence of other artists 
artists like a Quentin Tarantino mixtape. You had the dynamic poses of Jack Kirby, the anatomy of Alex Toth, pinup girls of the style of Dan DiCarlo, and the aesthetic of Gotham City was inspired by Art Deco and the paintings of Hugh Ferris mixed with the Fleischer Brothers Superman cartoons. While the show itself wasn't funny like a lot of other cartoons of the time, there was nuance to its storytelling that was intriguing and seemed to respect me as a viewer. I think that most kids my age, this was probably their stepping stone into anime and more adult-centric uh, cartoons with complex narratives that wouldn't be too far behind after this show was released. If I had to pick a favorite episode, I'd say it's the Chance to Dream episode, where Bruce Wayne wakes up and discovers, what? I'm in a world where I'm not Batman? This can't be. It stalls for a little while in that, you know, he just keeps questioning, no, this can't really be my life. I was Batman. And then what where it really comes to a head is the confrontation in the end when Bruce Wayne meets with his alter ego on the top of a clock tower where they have a here's what's really going on reveal where he's in some sort of dream world where his greatest fantasy has come to life and he just cannot accept that. So Bruce Wayne jumps off the bell tower to essentially kill himself because he would rather die than live in a world where he is not Batman. As you stole my answer, by the way. Oh. That is my favorite one, too. It's an yeah. amazing episode. Yeah, as a 10-year-old viewer, just seeing that kind of story be in front of you just blew my tiny little mind. You did not see something like that on television as a kid. Fair point. Steven, what about you? What's one of your favorite episodes? Well, you know, I was watching this from day one. I was so excited for this. I think... You know, my favorite episode is the two-part Robin's Reckoning. It's oh, my favorite. You stole my answer, Steven. Sorry. It's my favorite Robin story outside of, you know, the comics. Uh, it's just so moving. They, they do his origin so well. Tony Zuko. Oh, my God. And, and I remember watching it as a kid, and that scene at the end between Batman and Robin is so emotional. You just get sucked right into it. Uh, some other episodes. Uh, I love the way that it, it kind of revered the Adam West show, and they brought him back for the Gray Ghost. Yeah. Oh, that's a good one. Too. That's such a cool episode. Also, Roddy McDowell playing the Mad Hatter uh, was fantastic. And then I would say, I think Heart of Ice is my second favorite episode after Robin's Reckoning. Uh, again, they just tug at the heartstrings, uh, showing you Mr. Freeze, a character that was kind of one note in uh, the comics and, and uh, the 60s show, and they give him like a real depth. I was kind of hoping to see that depth at the time in Batman and Robin, but did not get it. What about you, Adam? What do you got? So, you know, it's interesting, by the way, Michael, that you say that this show was, you know, was considered mature for the time. On HBO Max, you can't watch it if you have a kid's profile. Oh, I was really? trying to show it to my kids. I was like, why can't I find Batman the Animated Series? Then I went to my profile, then it came up. So I was like, that's so weird. So it still has that stigma attached to it. But for me, my friend Chris, whose dad is the one that taught me all about collecting comics, they went to this Los Angeles convention and saw the On Leather Wings pilot a few months before the series debuted. And that got me so pumped. And they was giving me like just details here and there. I was like, I 
I can't believe it. And then I still remember like the Fox Action Theater bumper that they used to play going in and out of commercials on my local Fox affiliate of my, on the Saturday morning airings. I don't know if you guys ever saw that, but it would like play like a little like and like Batman would like walk across this ledge and there were all these doors opening. It was weird. You know, like I said, Stephen already stole my thunder on Robin's Reckoning parts my 1 and 2 being my favorite. No, we're on the same page. I knew it was going to happen. I mean, <laughs> but what happened was I bailed on the series when it became the new Batman Adventures. They changed the too. character models. I was just like, I hate it. Likewise. But I've been watching the series in reverse on HBO Max, and it's really not that bad storytelling wise. And like the dynamics of that series are still strong, even if the character models are kind of weird. So I would say right now, my favorite so far of that run is the ultimate thrill it features this adrenaline junkie female villain named roxy rocket who literally rides on a one-person rocket and is like stealing stuff for the penguin like it was just it was crazy like she's like batman's gonna run her into a mountainside in this game of chicken and she's like excited to go out in such a big way like she's nuts that was a crazy episode and a fun new character so that's kind of my favorite of the moment interesting now what about favorite villains anybody got a favorite villain it's hard to top Hamill's Joker, right. but what the show did so well was cast voice actors who were a little unexpected to play those villains. Like, as I mentioned, they brought on Roddy McDowell for the Mad Hatter, Adrian Barbeau as Catwoman in a very kind of sexy, sultry performance, uh, Richard Mall as Harvey Dent Two-Face, you know, Richard oh! Mall from Night Court. Uh, another great performance. And then, it, isn't it uh, Paul Williams who plays the Penguin? Yep. Yes. yes. Paul Williams, who famously wrote The Rainbow Connection from the Muppet movie. So yes. it's they do a great job with that. I thought they did a really cool job with the Riddler, oh, uh, yes. with John, John Glover playing him as this ultimate genius uh, and not just a guy bouncing around in green tights, which I also love. First of his many DC Comics roles since he played that scientist Poison Ivy kills at the beginning of Batman and Robin. He went on to play Lex Luthor's dad in Smallville, and mm-hmm. he was Dr. Savania's dad in the recent Shazam movie. Yes. And he he was a, I feel like he was an early choice for the Joker. I've heard that many times in like the 1989 Batman movie. Wow. I can see that. One of my favorite lines is one of the first Riddler episodes where they're like, if the planet were equitable, I'd have my old job again. And then they, then like Batman figures out, it's like, oh, the World's Fair exposition. And you're just like, whoa, how do you put that together? It's amazing. <laughs> I love that line. You know what else? You know what, what What other character they did really well was Clock King in an episode oh. called Tempest Magic. You know, Clock King was this ridiculous villain from one of the worst reviewed episodes of 1960s Batman. And they just made him cool and like very, very strange and, and interesting. Cool. You know, it's another one that I really like. I think it's a very underrated one is the night of the ninja. When Bruce Wayne goes to Japan and he's meeting with his old sensei and the ninjas like competing with him and they're fighting on the volcano. I love that villain because I don't know if you can fully say that he's a villain in that particular episode. Cause he's sort of like just a rival and it's, Really interesting dynamic in that episode. I always loved how they got veteran character actors for this show. It's never a, oh, we got this name. They always get it because of someone who's familiar with playing a certain 
type, like uh, Mr. Freeze, for example, voiced by Michael and Sarno, uh, famous for being one of the first Klingons on the original Star Trek. But even before that, he was known for playing Native Americans in TV and radio westerns for his very distinct stoic tone. And that just comes through so beautifully in that character. So hmm, Very good point. So this show is obviously extremely well received and Wizard Magazine ranked it as the second best animated series of all time behind The Simpsons. So, Stephen, do you want to talk a little bit about like the development of the show and like how it came to be? Yeah, so based on the original press release, uh, they said the creators of the television successful Batman the Animated Series plan a motion picture length story to expand on the personal life of Bruce Wayne's, of Batman's alter ego Bruce Wayne. This was a May 11th, 1993 article. It says pre-production was done at Warner Brothers Animation and the actual animation was done at Japan Spectrum Animation Studio and South Korea's Dongyang Animation Inc. Uh, so basically, you know, this was commissioned as a direct-to-video feature to be released between the seasons, but because Warner Brothers liked what they saw, they decided to turn it into a theatrical release. I guess give it a little bit more money. Adam, you had uncovered something in Wizard Magazine about what they were calling it. Right, yeah. So this was being reported for like months and months. You know, they just kept saying, oh, they're doing a full-length animated movie. And then, you know, we got the news it was going to be theatrical. But the whole time, like literally up until like just before the release, they called it Masks. Not Mask of the Phantasm, it was just called Batman Masks, in all caps. Mask of the Phantasm is kind of a mouthful. (laughs) (laughs) But then you get movies years later, like Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice, and you're like, Mask of the Phantasm, not too long. (laughs) (laughs) Also during the development, you know, they were kind of going through potential ideas, script ideas, and one that they were considering doing as the feature was a script called The Trial, which eventually they made into an episode, and it's about basically the inmates of of Arkham Asylum put Batman on trial. They decided the storyline was too brainy and it sidelined Batman for too long, so instead they opted to craft this storyline, which was heavily inspired by Orson Welles' Citizen Kane, in case you guys didn't catch the reference when you were watching it. Basically (laughs) told the story about Batman's uh, lost love, uh, the one that got away and the one that could have kept him from becoming Batman. Interesting. So let's let's talk about a little bit of the, the premise of this movie. There are elements of it showing a little bit of Batman's origins, the building of his costume. In many ways, there are similarities to like Batman Begins. I think in in certain ways, it almost tells it better than Batman Begins at times. I would like, agree. Yeah. You know, hmm. I, I I really loved the reveal of the actual bat suit when he because you don't actually see him when he puts puts the suit on for the first time you know the way the bats come up from the cave when he's sitting out by the water it's it's just kind of like a beautiful moment and i really like that but the the phantasm spoiler andrea beaumont uh, storyline is mostly original I don't think that it's based on any particular comic book story, but Adam says that it was based on a Phantasm character called the Reaper that Todd McFarlane came in to help finish the original art for. 
Yeah, so so like it, the, you know, the filmmakers are not claiming that they stole the idea from this Batman Year Two comic, but if you go and look at it, you're like, this is a hundred percent the Phantasm, except in like a red costume instead of this grayish costume. So so you, if you go back, it's actually on Comicsology. You can go back and read it, and yeah, the Reaper is the Phantasm. But is the Reaper a female character? No, not necessarily, but it's, but you know, I'm just saying like in the design of who the Phantasm is as a villain. Fair enough. So what do you guys think overall of the Phantasm as a villain? And do you think it's a villain? Like, do you think that character is a villain or not? Well, as someone who's killing people, yes, I do think that qualifies (laughs) as a villain. Well, Punisher kills people. I don't know, is he a villain? I mean, he's killing mob bosses, yeah, the Phantasm's killing mob bosses, so yeah, I guess it's wherever you fall on anti-heroes if you're down with that type of justice. Yeah, not dissimilar. There's there's a lot of vengeance-based characters, you know, Huntress is a vengeance-based character, as I just mentioned, you know, Punisher is, and, and so on and so forth. It's like the duality of, like, they are killing people, but they're killing bad people, and is it i don't know i i kind of feel like this character yes it's it's a foil it's a, it's an antagonist but i don't know if it's fully a villain yeah i mean the, the the like you know the design of the character is amazing and that reveal of the phantasm in that cemetery scene when he's chasing down that or when she's chasing down that mobster is really creepy and weird yeah. like that's a beautifully animated scene i'm surprised that the phantasm character hasn't you know, been expanded into live action or other aspects of Batman, almost like the way Harley Quinn has. It's a really cool character. And if you had, you know, a live action Batman storyline where, you know, the woman he loved became kind of a, you know, a, a funhouse mirror version of him, that's a really cool storyline. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's strong in that way, but what I want is, like, a handbook of the Marvel Universe breakdown of the Phantasm's costume, because how is she controlling all that smoke? I mean, literally, she can make it do anything. anything. It seems like she does it's, have superpowers. Yeah, it's, it's, it, there's, like, a mystical element of yeah. it, which is kind of interesting. And you mentioned, Stephen, about the character being reused or, or adapted to live action. They haven't done that yet. I, I agree. I wish they would. That'd be really cool. But uh, I mentioned this on a previous episode somewhere that Tom King is writing a Batman Catwoman 12 issue like maxi series. And the villain in that story is the Phantasm. Yes. You, yes, you did mention that. And Which, that's definitely a book I want to pick it's up now. Really interesting. Like, they've only done two issues so far. I think the third one comes out next week. And it is probably one of the best DC stories going on right now, I think. People have a lot of complaints about Tom King because he sometimes he starts real strong and then ends really poorly. But this is a really interesting story, in my opinion, and I I like it. Yeah, you know, so let's give a little bit of of kind of the story of the Phantasm character since we've already spoiled it. Uh, (laughs) 30 years later. (laughs) Is the the daughter of of a businessman named Carl Beaumont who kind of runs afoul of the mafia and is murdered by the mob. And then she's going through one by one and killing all the mobsters that killed her father. Her basic goal is she has like this hit list of specific people that she wants to wipe out. It's not like randomly killing bad guys, almost the way Batman randomly beats up, you know, uh, muggers and thugs. She has a very specific goal in mind, which is also different from the Punisher. You know, it's not just willy nilly going out there shooting up the place. She's targeting people. Right. 
Does that make her more of a hero? It's a very fair argument. The only thing that I have a funny feeling about with this character is, I almost feel like, and this could be argued one way or the other, and they don't establish this in the movie, but when I rewatched it, I thought about this. It almost felt like when her father was killed, she might have had some sort of like psychological break. And it's almost as if she's got a, I wouldn't even say a dual personality, but almost like a third personality as if she's almost like becoming her father to get vengeance for, for what happened in a way, you know? Right. I mean, she speaks in his voice through the mask. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Which yes. Is a, very interesting element in the movie well moving off that we should go into the voice actors because you you know you just mentioned that she speaks as her father once again kevin conroy reprises his role as batman bruce wayne from the tv series i think he's great in this as always also from the tv series you have ephraim zimbalist jr as alfred bob hastings as commissioner gordon robert costanzo as harvey bullock and most notably mark hamill returns as the joker so uh, we keep talking about Andrea Beaumont. She was voiced by Dana Delaney, who at this t- point in time was mostly known for her role on China Beach. And because of her success in this role as Andrea Beaumont, she went on to voice Lois Lane in the Superman the Animated Series. So I, I have to say something about Dana Delaney as Andrea Beaumont. Okay, so my wife doesn't necessarily want to sit down and watch superhero movies with me ever, but I was turning this on to, to catch up on it. And after 30 seconds of hearing Dana Delaney as Andrea Beaumont, she was just like, I like her, and wanted to keep watching. Like, it's such a well-written character. It's a fantastic performance, both in the flashbacks, and then, like Michael was talking about, this tortured soul in the present timeline. Like, she is just a breath of fresh air. Of course they wanted to work with her again and make her Lois Lane. Oh, no, she's fantastic. And I feel like every scene that she's in... I, Andrea Beaumont, that, that character steals the scene. Like, she, she clearly is the focal point and is, in a lot of ways, the driving force of the story. Batman, like in many other Batman movies, he's kind of a B character, sort of figuring out the mystery as it goes along, but you're really following her journey. I don't know. I would argue that, that they give Bruce Wayne plenty to do, and Co- Kevin Conroy gets to show a lot more range than he ever does on any episode, I feel. All right, fine. Whatever. Give me a <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm just saying, like, in comparison to the series, this is a great outing for Batman and Bruce Wayne, so... Yes, yes, he does. And, and you do see a lot more detectiving of him, and you also see the, the billionaire playboy side of him and you see like the jovial goofy and then he's the broken tortured guy at the cemetery yes i agree fine fair enough <laughs> all right agree to disagree whatever <laughs> they kind so, of have like a like a harold and Maud type relationship where they just keep running into each other in the cemetery that's where their meat cute is <laughs> yes they keep seeing each other in the cemetery. You're not the like, only person who talks to dead people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's yeah. a lot of cemetery stuff in this movie. Yeah, since we're covering voice actors in general, I want to give a shout out here to Andrea Romano, a Long Island native who has become one of the most accomplished and respected voice and casting directors within the animation industry, who is responsible for the voice directing in the series and is responsible for casting Kevin Conroy in the role of Batman. And trivia confirms that Andrea Beaumont is indeed named after her. Yes. And Long Island representing (laughs) with a name like Romano. Come on. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) She had to be from Long Island. So, you know, once again, Stacey Keach plays her father, Carl Beaumont, 
but he also voices the phantasm. So Dana Delaney does not play the phantasm technically. That's a good point. Good point. Now, I, I, I only know Stacey Keach from the short-lived Fox sitcom Titus, where he played a verbally abusive father for the stand-up comedian star of the show. So I know he's done so much more, but that's my Stacey Keach reference point. He's done a ton. He was Mike Hammer in like the 70s and 80s. That was his big thing. Uh, he was also the original Father Karras in The Exorcist. But then they discovered Jason Miller and they did, they paid out uh, Stacey Keach to not play the role, basically. <laughs> it was an Eric Stoltz, uh, Michael J. Fox back to the future. <laughs> sort of, but he didn't even film the movie at all. So. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, he's he's got like one of those great grizzled character actor faces yeah he did like a lot of direct-to-video movies in the 90s as well which i'm sure we all watched on showtime because there was nothing else on uh and then hart bachner plays arthur reeves michael i was curious to know do you know who hart bachner is do i know who hart of course bachner. you do michael you gotta He's know in it, one of Bobby. your favorite movies yeah oh. we're talking about hart bachner who voiced arthur in this movie he's your white knight oh eric give him the reveal he was Ellis, the sleazy accountant from oh, Die Hard. Oh, that's right. That's right. Hans, Bubby. <laughs> oh, you're right. And Adam, what do, you, what do you love him in? Oh, Supergirl. He was Ethan, the dopey gardener <laughs> that was her love interest. <laughs> Decades before I saw Die Hard. He is from Supergirl. Oh, my God. That's <laughs> funny. I'm, I'm tearing laughing right now. <laughs> Oh god. He has kind of a nice moment when he gets jokerized basically and he's just giggling and laughing. That must have been a fun scene to do in a voiceover booth. Yeah. Uh so then you also have character actors Dick Miller, you know, who was in every Joe Dante movie. He plays Mr. Futterman in the Groundlands movies, uh and he was most also notably. The gun shop owner in the original Terminator. Yes, yes he was. And he was in all the Roger Corman movies. He's in Little Shop of Horrors, Bucket of Blood. He's just one of those guys that's in a million things. And then Abe Vigoda, most famously from The Godfather, uh, makes it makes it an appearance as a gangster, a very old gangster, and he plays him as very old, very old. Yes. What did you guys think of Dick Miller and Abe Vigoda? Uh, we have a joke, uh, running joke on Mystery Movie Night, the other podcast I'm a part of, where Dick Miller just unintentionally keeps showing up in movies we watch. So. <laughs> Uh, Abe Vigoda for me is from Good Burger. Yes. So... <laughs> really? Good yes. Burger. That's, that's the highest that he got for you guys is Good Burger? Really? It is so much better than anybody gives it credit for. That movie is hilarious. He's in The Godfather. Yes. Oh, good for him. <laughs> Come on. Uh, Abe Vigoda came to my college when I was there, and I had a very nice, long conversation with him. Wow. He was very funny. He was in his 80s. And he goes to me, I jog eight miles a day. You want to see how I do it? And I'm like, sure. And then he just jogged in place for me <laughs> while making a really goofy face. That's uh, some classic vaudeville. Oh, man, he got me. That uh, is he, pretty funny. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of colleges, fun little bit of trivia here. Kevin Conroy, who provides the voice of Bruce Wayne and Batman, is a graduate of Juilliard, where he was friends with a fellow actor named Christopher Reeve. Wow. Yes. I, I, they were also friends with Robin Williams at that point, weren't they? Yeah, yes, I think so. that is correct. He's even yeah. put up some photos of them together on Twitter. Kevin Conroy has. So that's awesome. That's pretty cool. I mean, overall, I think everybody was extremely well cast in this movie and the voices really work well with the characters they're given 
And you don't necessarily get distracted by like, oh, you know, that's so-and-so. You just kind of lose yourself in the character that they're portraying, in my opinion. Yeah, and I got to say that, you know, we mentioned Mark Hamill. I mean, you know, there's nothing we can say that hasn't already been said, but his dialogue in this movie is so much better than any regular series episode. It is just the script is fantastic. And he is just, he's so hilarious, especially when he's like playing house in the World's Fair House of the Future or whatever with his mm-hmm. robot wife, Hazel. Well, I know we'll get to that a little bit later, but that's just Oh my so God, funny. I can't wait to talk about the, the robot. Yeah. Because that was so weird. <laughs> it was so weird. So let's talk a little bit about the release of the movie. This movie didn't do very well at all. According to many involved, Warner Brothers kind of bungled the theatrical release. According to Box Office Mojo, it grossed worldwide $5.6 million. Oof. And it was a Christmas release. It released around the holidays, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I looked it up, and this opened opposite movies like Philadelphia, Grumpy Old Men, and Tombstone. Movies that just buried it. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yes, yeah, sadly, this is not the first time that Warner Brothers has dropped the ball on promoting an animated feature. I suspect a lot of the money from advertising for this movie got pulled in the conversion from making this a direct-to-video feature to releasing it in theater because there was a whole bunch of scramble to get the proper aspect ratio from you know square television format to widescreen. And like I said, not the first time Warner Brothers has done this. Warner Brothers has kind of had a history of dropping the ball on their animated feature promotion. Like when I believe it was when Quest for Camelot came out, their big we're going to show Disney who's boss by making an animated fantasy musical exactly like they did. Come on, at least Shrek made it into a farcical comedy. Yeah, the Iron Giant, too, probably. Yeah. Well, right. that's the thing. They put all their money on the advertising for Quest for Camelot because they thought that was going to be the big hit. <laughs> and Iron Giant suffered because they didn't make their money back on that one. Oh, man. <laughs> Can you guys take any guess as to what place Batman Mask of the Phantasm came in that year's box office? No, I'm going to try to remember because Eric, when he was on the main show, I believe that he gave us the stat. And if okay. I can remember back to that, I, was it number 23? I'm talking about the entire year. Of oh, the whole year, not just Ooh. the month. Okay. Yes. Mm. That's probably pretty low. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to guess 230. Okay. I'm going to at least put it in the top. I'm going to at least give it 100. So. I'm going to say 180. So Price is Right rules? It was 165th oh. in the box office numbers that year. Behind movies like Surf Ninjas, hey, yes, Mr. <laughs> Nanny, and Tom and Jerry the movie. But it was one notch ahead of the Patrick Swayze movie Fatherhood. Wow. Did any of you guys see this in theaters? I did not see it in theaters. Yeah, I, I saw it opening weekend with my dad because I was an avid reader and subscriber to Batman Superman magazine. And so in their winter 1994 issue, which came out, you know, in December, uh, they had an, an actual full ad for the movie on the back cover. And then they also had an article inside, which 
also had a in the middle like an original poster that came just in this magazine so it was pretty fantastic i mean i I loved the magazine anyway but that's how i found out about it and it was very similar to my viewing of the shadow the next summer because there was barely anybody else in the theater with us so (laughs) (laughs) i saw the shadow in the theater i'll 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 admit to that so so did i i saw the shadow oh you guys are my buds no wonder (laughs) i hated it but i saw it Bud status revoked. <laughs> I did not see this in the theater. And that's what, like, I'm shocked that I didn't see it in the theater because I was a huge fan of Batman the Animated yeah. Series. But I, I just felt like it seemed like I was going to be paying for something that I was watching every day. It didn't seem that spectacular to me. Mm-hmm. And here's something crazy. I didn't see the movie until 10 years ago. I you just know, never... I didn't see it till much, much later, like even after college. So, yeah, probably... You know, maybe when it first came onto DVD, I saw it, you know, for the first time. Yeah, just to bash on the uh, poor promotion of this movie some more, the theatrical trailer is the only special feature I have on my copy of the DVD, and it is awful. Despite the fact that they have the late, great Don LaFontaine, you know, the inner world guy Mm. doing voiceover, its gimmick is selling, this is Batman, but this time he's animated. Not much of a selling point, yeah. And people have said this many times over. It didn't look that much better visually than the cartoon show itself. Like it wasn't like a, a you know, I'll use Into the Spider Verse type of a thing. Like that is such a visual spectacle. You're just like, oh my goodness. Where this just looked like a longer episode. Right. Or as, as uh, an example, I could pull out another film I saw in the theaters, The Jetsons, the movie. It was 100% better than the TV animation from the 60s, you know? So, like, it was something where I was like, okay, this feels like a big budget, you know, production. So, yeah. But, yeah, you're right. This one, you can see the moments where they added some pretty cool effects, but it's just, it's a, you have to have a nuanced eye, I feel like, to notice it. Yeah, and then there are scenes, you know, between the mobsters and the car that just look even worse than stuff on the on the cartoon, you know? Like, there's nothing special about it. I don't know what you could have done to promote this movie, because it the story itself of tragedy, flashbacks, romance, it's not exactly the kind of story that appeals to the kind of people who would typically go to see a Batman movie off the street. So it's no surprise that when Cartoon Network cut their own trailer for this movie, they included a lot more footage of the Batman versus police fight to sell that this is an exciting action thriller. Mm -hmm. You know, we should read from the original Variety Review, which is kind of echoing a lot of these same points. Uh, It says, recalling the animated Superman shorts of the 1940s, Batman Mask of the Phantasm is a Baroque melodramatic tale of good and evil that's a tad too sophisticated for its intended youthful audience. (laughs) The shrill thriller is a throwback to a bygone time more appealing to adults. This series of misconnections doesn't add up to terrific box office potential. Expect quick payoffs for for this noble effort. A hit on television, the animated Batman does not flow to the big screen gracefully. While the script and pedigree of actors are commendable, the craft level is too close to the small screen offering to get audiences into theaters. So basically what we're kind of saying, it just didn't do enough to kind of differentiate it from what we were getting after school every day. Yeah, and 
10-year-old boys might not fully see all the nuance, is what they're saying. Yeah, I definitely didn't as a kid. Like, there's so much I appreciate now as an adult, but it's kind of boring for a kid who, yeah, just wanted action, action, action. I actually, I didn't even watch it for years. When I did, like, the, the only scene I remembered was the opening phantasm attack in the parking garage, because the movie theater I saw it in was in a mall with a parking garage attached to it, and I had to walk through it to go home that night. I was like, I'm living the movie! Like, I totally forgot the Joker was even in it until I watched it again like 10 or 12 years ago. So, yeah. But you know what's funny? I almost feel like the Joker is shoehorned in there to add that extra level of action and, you know, zaniness that the the story is – the third act of the movie is – very different than most of the rest of the film because the Joker plays such a major part in it. Now, uh, Stephen, one thing I find hilarious, you know, is that you know, you talked about not, not a lot of people went to see this right away, and there's another review in here where some very big reviewers didn't even go to see it right away. What can you tell us about that? Because this cracked me up. So Siskel and Ebert reviewed this movie, but they reviewed it in 1995, after they had both seen Batman Forever. And once again, this movie came out in Christmas of 1993. So it took a couple <laughs> years before Siskel and Ebert got to it. They talk about watching it. Uh, Siskel says he watched it at home on his laser disc, if that puts it wow. into a time uh, and place. But they both loved it. They gave it a glowing review. Siskel didn't like Mark Hamill's performance. He didn't even say the name Mark Hamill. He just said the guy playing the Joker is not very good compared wow. to Jack Nicholson. Uh, but to quote Ebert, they actually have more of a story than the live action movies. They have characters and the, and they think and they pause and and they have motivations and you get involved in that. So they loved it, but they saw it when it was on video. <laughs> Two years later. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> a lot of good that did, Siskel and Ebert. Thanks for your help. There you go. Really boosting the sales now. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about the storyline. Do you guys think that the story works better than the previous two Bat films, which would be Batman and Batman Returns. I mean, it's a better Batman-centric movie, like we talked about earlier, than any of the previous Batman films in terms of character development. I mean, I'm including the Batman 66 film, because like this feels like it's a more mature version of the Batman-Catwoman relationship from Batman Returns. You know, they're both vigilantes. The thing is, though, it misses the dark humor and the fun factor of like the action of the Burton films. It's not a dynamic movie at all. It has some neat visual moments, but... And, and, like I say, like the dialogue is amazing. Lots of sophisticated humor worked into the script. And, you know, to finally get a film focused on the Bruce Wayne character, uh, which the live action films really wouldn't even attempt, and even then just barely, until Batman Forever. It just, it shows to me why the animated series creative team always handled him best. And so, like, I, I do feel it's 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 a better movie, at least uh, artistically, than the Burton films. But I think as movies, the Burton films are better at being entertaining if that makes sense okay steven what about you what do you think i agree i think if this had been a two-part episode of the show it would be one of our favorite two-part episodes yes but because they had to stretch it and put in some some so much filler it just doesn't work as well and i mean filler this movie is what 75 minutes long (laughs) and it still feels too long it doesn't have that grand 
spectacle. And I say this kind of in a in a sad way, because I think Batman the Animated Series is the best adaptation of Batman. I think it has the best Robin story, the best Mr. Free story, some of the best Joker stories, the best version of Two-Face I've seen. So they do so much right, and it's disappointing that there's not more to this. I think a lot of it is they didn't really, as we've mentioned, the Joker is kind of shoehorned in there. If they had done that reveal with Andrea Beaumont earlier in the movie and set up this big finale. I think it might have worked a little bit better than it does now. So yeah, that's my take. I I would much rather watch the live action Batman movies. And I'm not even that crazy about Batman Returns. And Eric, what do you think? Do you think this is better or worse than the two Burton movies? Mm, I do like how this movie is shockingly lean. There's not a single moment of film that feels wasted, like everything continues and propels things into the next part of the story, which helps the intimate personal intrigue with these flashbacks. Comparing the two, they really do feel like such different animals. It just feels like it is a longer episode of the series where they were allowed to get away with a little more. So, So, okay, fair point, fair point. So, I know Adam's answered this already, that he feels that this is a much better Bruce Wayne story. But how do we feel about this as a Batman story? I mentioned this in the notes. This was the first movie to set up this thing that's become a trope of the Batman movies, which is, will Bruce Wayne give up being Batman? It starts here, and then a couple years later, they do it in Batman Forever, where Dr. Chase Meridian convinces him that maybe he shouldn't be Batman anymore. They do it in The Dark Knight. They do it in The Dark Knight Rises. They just keep coming up with the same storyline from... From Mask of the Phantasm. So I think that, you know, that's kind of an interesting aspect of it. Yeah, that's that's my take on it. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like, you know, if, from a Batman perspective, yeah, I mean, again, it is light on Batman. But at the same time, because of that moment that you cited, Michael, just like the birth of Batman where he's in the shadows and Alfred hands him the cowl and he puts it on, gives us that signature Batman the Animated Series squid to that Alfred's like, my God, you know, like, <laughs> that's that's a batman moment you know like that that's pretty strong yeah there are fewer batman moments but when they're on screen they make an impact alfred's great in this alfred is great in this and he has that great moment at the end when he talks about how she kind of fell into the abyss and that he was always afraid that bruce would fall into that same abyss now here's a question i have for you guys andrea beaumont is to my knowledge an invented character for this movie am i right Yes. So as Batman movies in particular, in relation to this, where you have the Dr. Chase Meridians and whatever and the Rachel Dawes characters of non-canon characters that are created for movies, I think this is the best Bruce Wayne love interest character of all of those previously non-existent characters what do you guys think couldn't agree more man i mean just just like of of all superhero movies she's actually one of my favorite female characters again like she just is so she works on every level there's not a dull moment like you pointed out michael whenever she's on screen you're just like yes more please like i'm so interested in this character are we discounting Elle mcpherson as julie madison and <laughs> oh, Batman and robin oh my god how could we ever like please <laughs> Jeez, like. because that storyline was deep very deep uh no yeah she she's a, she's great you know as we've mentioned dana delaney's fantastic there's a lot of layers to play with in in their relationship so yeah i'd agree i think she's 
she's the best of those characters. Because this is intended to be a, a more mature audience-themed movie versus the after-school cartoon, there's more violence, there's more gunplay, some gruesome moments with the, you know, smile, grin, poison thing. And there's a scene where the Joker tries to sleep with the baloney slicing robot. <laughs> Speaking of invented female characters for a Batman movie. So the Phantasm interrupts the Joker as he's trying to have sex with a robot. You feeling the old electricity tonight? I rewound that moment to make sure I saw what I thought I saw. <laughs> Holy crap, that's weird for a kid's movie. <laughs> yeah, he pats her on the butt. He's groping that robot. Yeah. To say nothing of the implied intercourse between Bruce and Andrea that we get to see late earlier. So I know that Alfred keeps walking in on yeah. <laughs> multiple times. Oh, excuse me. Sorry, sir. Oh, yeah. yeah, I'm kind of amazed they got away with that in an animated film that was rated PG. I mean, Inside Out, Frozen, Kung Fu Panda. Those are all movies that are rated PG now that feel like, well, why are they rated PG? They they feel like G. And so I'm just, a, PG meant something different back then, I think. It was That's a different sure. time. Have you yeah. seen Splash? That movie shaped all of us. <laughs> that was a PG. Well, not if you've seen the version they put on Disney+. Plus. Uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I have that. the original on VHS, and yeah, there's a whole lot of Daryl Hannah in that movie. <laughs> <laughs> or like Doc Hollywood, which was PG-13. These are was all the it? movies. Really? Oh, yeah, I thought that, that one was rated R. I, was I, like, love, I love PG-13. That they thought we could handle more back in the in the 90s. Well, they don't really have G movies anymore, so it's kind of like the, the, the PG thing has become what was G back then in a lot of mm-hmm. cases, I feel like, you know? Which is weird, because I think that older movies like Bambi or Pinocchio are actually more intense than some oh, of the yeah. that are rated G are some more intense than some of the PG movies we get now. That's true. I, I would agree. So a couple of questions that I have for you guys, and this feels like we haven't really wrapped up the whole movie, but this is a question I want to ask. Does the Joker die in this movie? Well, he shows up in later episodes, so... And in that Batman Beyond, Return of the Joker, sort of. Where does this fit into the timeline? Because every time I watch it, I try to figure that out. It feels like year two, like pre-Robin. Yeah, because there's no mention of Robin or Dick and anything in there. And yeah, I mean, like... The other thing is, you don't see the Batmobile in this entire movie either. There's no Batmobile. Yeah, we get the Batwing, we get the Batcycle... Oh, no, we see the Batmobile driving off to the cemetery when uh, Harvey Bullock is up on the roof lighting the bat signal. Because we show that he's... We see that, oh, he's not taking the bait to get caught by the police. Oh, at the very... Oh, yes, later in the... Yeah, when they're trying to catch him. That's right. Okay, you are right. It's a blink-and-you-miss-it moment. That's right. There has to be Dick Grayson, though, because he meets Dick Grayson pretty early on in his Batman days, in this show. I think it's year two. I think maybe it could, in theory, be after the events of this movie. Hmm. Doesn't Bruce Wayne have a different bat suit when he first meets Dick Grayson in that episode? He does, yes. He doesn't have the yellow symbol in the show. continuity obsessed here. We're we're (laughs) nerds. I do have a continuity complaint about this movie that really bothered me when I watched it. It is, we see the Phantasm in that parking garage, but then the next scene we see Andrea on an airplane. And I'm like, what? what? But she's the villain. How is she on the airplane? It's like, wait, 
it's what I love to call fridge moments, where you don't question it until after the movie's over and you've gone to the fridge to get a beer. And once the light shines on your face, you're like, wait a minute. But uh, Michael, back to your original question, does the Joker die when he's dragged away by the phantasm? I, my theory is this, he probably slipped out of her arms while in the smoke, activated an inflatable Joker dummy to fake Andrea out, and then, you know, the clown prince of crime is very crafty like that, so I'm sure he just (laughs) took off, and she's hugging this inflatable, like, huh? (laughs) It felt to me like a copy of the Michelle Pfeiffer Catwoman Max Shrek ending in Batman Returns because this, essentially almost the same thing happens like she gets Batman to go away she kills the bad guy but she lives too and it felt similar to that and I don't know like I I wonder and now because recently they've done a, a storyline called the three jokers and there's other jokers that have existed throughout time that i'm kind of like hmm maybe she did kill him i don't know well we should mention because we haven't brought it up you know for those who haven't seen it in a while or never seen it you know the reason that she has a beef with the joker is we see him as you know we assume it's as jack napier as the movie continuity set it up but 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 uh my son is putting in his two cents over here Yeah. So basically, there's this photograph that has all of the gangsters and Andrea's father in the photo. And this one guy in the background is like this young gangster looking guy. And you keep seeing him appear periodically. And then later on in the movie, there is this reveal where Bruce Wayne, Batman, draws a smile on the face. And he's like, oh, my God. It's the Joker. Oh my God. And he realizes it. And it's all it takes. And and it's essentially it's the Jack Napier version of the Joker before he becomes the Joker. And she knows it, and now Batman knows it, so she has to kill him as the Joker. Yeah, and you know, she so she has this whole kill list, as we said. She's going through the kill list, and it seems like like Jack Napier was the one who who fired the kill shot on her father. Killed her dad, yeah. He's the one that she wants the most. And he seems very amused by the idea that he's about to be killed by her. He's really into it. He's cracking up. He's got a missing tooth. And it it leaves it very open as to whether or not she does it. And I I feel like, and this is the part that bothered me. I'm like, does every Batman story have to revolve around the Joker? I I get it back in 93. Yes, you have Mark Hamill. He's this wildly popular version of the Joker that everyone feels is probably the best iteration of the joker and it's revered but i look at it now in like a 2021 lens and i'm like did it have to be that character could it have just been gangsters and make her be the main focus and not be the big bad at the end of the movie again i think it comes down to if this had been an episode of the show that would have been fine to do it without the joker but because they were pushing this into theaters they're it like, just oh, felt like it needed that extra element. We we we, we got to bring in the heavy hitters. Exactly. Exactly. And that, you know, if I had one complaint about this movie, it's that it doesn't kind of go all in on that aspect of it. You know, you don't see many villains besides very old gangsters. <laughs> they don't even mention any other villains. Like, no, nothing even exists. Like, like there's no mention. Of, like you said, no mention of Robin. No mention of other villains. There's nothing. Like, like, you really don't even see much of the Batcave where you might see, like, 
you know, the dinosaur or the, the coin or whatever. They're is... keeping it nice and simple. No extraneous details. I also think it was a money thing. They just couldn't do, <laughs> you know, like, ah, we can't really animate this right now. We got to make it keep it tight. <laughs> keep it tight. <laughs> so what did you guys think about the song at the end credits? I certainly thought, wow, we, we don't do this uh, breakaway pop hit over the end credits like we used to. I mean, Titanic's My Heart Will Go On was probably the most famous example, but I think the last time I can ever remember hearing something like that was the end of the original Spider-Man with, who was that singing, Nickelback? I Chad forget. Kroger, yeah. Uh-huh. Well, and then Avengers, they had a Chris Cornell song. That's the last oh, time I remember right. it, that they were really trying that. Which is a little surprising we don't get that more often, since we've got to sit through credits longer now to get yeah. that sweet, sweet stingers. I, I don't know. I think I think they kind of, like, burn themselves out with the uh, Batman Forever soundtrack. is literally just chock-a-block full of all artists you have u2 and seal and you know the list goes on and on and on like that must have cost a fortune the way i figure movie studios were more in bed with the record companies then than they are now to sort of cross promote an album like you listen to the director's commentary for uh back to the future and they there's a whole segment about how the studio was trying to pressure them to change the name of the Power of Love song by Huey Lewis to, no, no, you got to call it Back to the Future so that we can cross-promote. Interesting. So <laughs> yeah. there, there's a note in here that I think Stephen put in specifically for me. Yeah, yeah. Because we referenced this in our previous 90 Super Cinema for Batman 89, and it basically says this, and I'm going to read it. As if I am reading through Stephen, uh, <laughs> it's like the 90s heartbroken romance ballad called I Never Even Told You with like a Kenny G type saxophone. Do you know who sings this? Michael, because do you know who sang it? I don't know who sang it, but it does feel like a Kenny G kind of an ending. And I, I will admit, I watched it all the way to the end of the credits just for that song. <laughs> so. Well, and Michael, I will tell you, so I watch everything with subtitles on. So as too. soon as that song came on, there was a name in the parentheses. Oh, and I was like, schwing! <laughs> Is it Tia Carrere? T- Carrere? It is. Yes, it Tia is. Carrere. No way. 
No way. That's wild. That I mean, obviously, wild. we knew she could sing because of Wayne's World. You know, she was singing all her own songs and that. But it was still an unexpected revelation that they got her to sing the, the love ballad at the end of Batman Mask of the Phantasm. It was and, a ballroom blitz. Yeah. And fun fact, this is not Tia Carrere's first encounter with a Batman actor. Wayne's World is obviously her most famous role, well, that we know her from anyway. But I was, uh, the first time I remembered seeing her in a movie was in a Mystery Science Theater 3000 episode featuring the movie Zombie Nightmare, where she plays a teenager killed off in a plot that also features Adam West as a corrupt cop. She also starred with He-Man in uh, Showdown in Little Tokyo. She was also in True Lies, right? With yes. Schwarzenegger? And Cole the Conqueror with Kevin Sorbo, Hercules! Jerkules, <laughs> uh, more like. Yeah. <laughs> Meme now, disappointed! <laughs> oh boy. That guy sucks, but we can. (laughs) (laughs) It's hard to like say that about someone who played Hercules because, you know, I like all that nonsense. But for me to say that guy sucks, he must really suck. All right. So let's play a little rapid fire game here. I'm going to rifle off some questions and let's see how you guys can answer them. Okay. so best Bruce Wayne Batman moment. Go. The reveal of Batman that we mentioned where he slips on the mask and turns around to face Alfred. You know, it's just the silhouette and nothing else. It's the character down to his essence. So yeah, 100% that one. Yeah. All right. I would say I would also say when uh, when she says uh, or when he says to to Andrea, I'm not the one being controlled by my father. Ooh, that is she, that is that is a good moment, too. Yeah. But is she, though? Like That's what uh, that's why I'm wondering about this, like duality split personality thing. I wonder. Yeah. Uh, best villain moment. For me, Joker killing Abe Vigoda, Sal, that was his name, mm. and using his corpse as a prop for a hidden camera. That is <laughs> incredibly brutal, even by Joker standards. We don't see him do it, but the end result is just as gruesome. And for children's cartoon movies as well. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, mine's a Joker moment also. It's when he's hitting on Hazel, he's talking about his lovely robot wife, and then he pinches her cheek and accidentally rips off a piece of the flesh, and then just casually tucks it in his pocket. Like, my wife and I got a huge laugh out of that. That is pretty funny. Favorite scene? Batman escaping from the police. It's straight out of Batman Year One. We've had moments like this in previous episodes of the show where Batman has to elude the police, like in the first episode on Leather Wings. I use the word elude uh, specifically because we can't show outright combat because of TV budget or censorship. So this film allows us somewhat of a bigger scale so that both parties can put more at risk with one another. Yeah, okay. I agree. That, that's the best scene in the movie. And yeah. especially the way he takes off his cowl and uses it. Yes, on, that is hobby, cool. that, a decoy. Oh, that is so good. Which connects to you guys. You know, you talked about it in the Batman 89 preview show, but the end of the adaptation in the comics where he puts the cowl on top of Knox and that that he's running around without the cowl, right? You know, like, so they, I don't know if that was an inspiration for that moment to do it again, but in the theatrical film, you know, and this. So, uh, but for, for me, the, my favorite scene is when Andrea shows up at the Wayne Mansion while Bruce is practicing jujitsu and shows that she's totally his equal 
and throws him. Yeah, that's a good scene. I really like that. Yeah, scene but too. like, but you, the dialogue is so good in that you instantly fall in love with both of them, and you are rooting for their relationship, yeah. which is the crux of the whole movie. So it, it's just such a well done scene, and it works so well for what they're trying to accomplish. Now, speaking of that, this is, I'm going to add a rapid fire question to this. Do you think she's a better relationship for him than Selena Kyle? I would say yes. I think um, so, too. I yeah, think. I mean, yeah the, the, I agree. Yeah. They have the connection, and there's they're so much equals. Like, Selena Kyle is, yeah, like, she's just, they don't have anything in common, but they just keep running into each other. You know what right. I'm saying? And, and they are, they have some chemistry, but he and Andrea have so much in common yeah. that it really makes sense. So what's your least favorite scene in the movie? For me, it's that opening pan through the CGI cityscape. It's, <laughs> it's just that. It's a pan without any sort of distinction about the city. It looks like test footage because that's exactly what it was. Because there were originally plans to have Batman interact with a CG city as a cost-saving measure on backgrounds. But when they realized, yeah, this really isn't going to save us that much money, they didn't want to put the what they worked on to waste so yeah just throw it over the opening credits it'll be fine it might have been something if there had been some sort of arc in the story about batman choosing love for the city over his love for andrea but Mm. it's a real read between the lines kind of situation gotcha now i will just quote real quick on that scene it does say here by batman superman magazine okay it says that batman mask of the phantasm features warner brothers animations first ever use of computer generated animation so this was the first time warner brothers did any computer animation in their films according to this article i have to say that i love that you have your magazine like in arm's reach right now for this you're just like (laughs) i got it my giant room of of collectibles i have this thing at the ready when i need it that's pretty funny but my least favorite scene is any scene with hart bachner's character he really slows down the movie whenever he appears i feel he is completely unnecessary like he has some connection to the mob and all of those things but i don't know it feels like they were trying to create a love triangle between batman and Andrea and this guy but it just it doesn't play out yeah he's also kind of a red herring could he be the phantasm my least favorite scene also features Hart Faulkner it's when he's in the back of the car with Abe Vigoda it's just so boring it is boring (laughs) so boring (laughs) super boring it isn't very healthy in here (laughs) favorite supporting character though Alfred Alfred agreed (laughs) he nails it in this movie not Bambi Oh, oh Brucey! Come on. What tough. about the I word? <laughs> that was, wasn't that Arlene? Uh, Arlene Sorkin, you think? I don't think, I it, think was. it was. I hear you typing away to look. <laughs> yeah, she's, she's uncredited as a girl named Bambi in Batman really? Master of the Phantasm. Oh, yeah. Wow. How about it? Look there you that. go. Not only did, did she host America's Funniest People, she also did Bambi. <laughs> <laughs> look at that. All right. Now that resume. (laughs) (laughs) Now, favorite piece of merchandising from this movie. Adam sent Stephen and I an interesting little picture of a spoiler action figure. Do you want to tell us about it a little bit? Yeah, so I mean, the movie wasn't a big deal, but like in retrospect, if you're walking through the toy aisles when they released a few of the figures to tie in, there was a Phantasm toy, because of course, this is the brand new villain, this is the big bad in this movie in the title. But the way it was packaged was you had the Phantasm cowl and 
cloak on one side, and then the other side was Andrea Beaumont without the mask, with anything, just in her black bodysuit. So it was like the thing where you're just like, what? Like, they totally spoiled the entire reveal of the movie, like, by just putting it out there. And, you know, I don't know if they thought that was going to get more people to the theater. They're like, oh, you know, like, who? it's a woman under there? I gotta see how they do this. But, yeah, that was unfortunate marketing on their part. Reminiscent of the blank figure from Dick Tracy, only that never was actually released. I, I thought it was released, I think Adam. in Canada it was, yes, but only yeah. in Canada, yeah. Not here, not not on Long Island, Michael. That's, <laughs> that's true. I, I did have a Dick Tracy figure, not the blank one. There you go, that's for sure. Should have planted a red herring with the face under the phantasm mask, uh, replaced Andrea's face with the uh, face of that Dr. Claw Inspector Gadget. Yeah, there you go, <laughs> another one. Can Whoa. I just say that toy is the reason why I didn't want to see the movie. My friend and I decided that it would be lame to see that twist. We're like, oh, Phantasm is just his girlfriend? Eh. Why would we want to see that? We're 10 years old. We're 11 years old. I want to see I want to see a real bad guy. I want to see his girlfriend. And he turns up. Yeah. (laughs) Show me a guy that dates a robot that slices baloney. (laughs) (laughs) That's a real man. I'm going to cheat a little with my favorite piece of merchandise and say my favorite is a copy of this coffee table book called Batman Animated, written by series writer Paul Dini and graphic designer Chip Kidd, who you'll best know as the guy who designed the Jurassic Park logo. This is an amazing book with over 140 pages of behind-the-scenes material about the making of the animated series, including interviews with the cast, crew, and tons of pages of full-color concept art. Uh, Sadly, Mask of the Phantasm only gets two pages devoted to it, probably because it was such a rush job of a movie. This book was originally published in 1998 when I got it, but I discovered last year that it is out of print and going for hundreds of dollars on eBay. Keep it safe, Eric. Yep. Sell yep. It. Sad- Sell it. Sadly, I have read through it so many times that much like my copies of Essential Fantastic Four, it is dog-eared and falling apart <laughs> because I would have never guessed that of all the Batman books I bought in the late 90s. This is one I wouldn't have suspected would be the one that would actually be worth some money. (laughs) (laughs) So before I ask this next question, Stephen, don't even bother answering. I know know your answer already. We know, we know. What is this movie missing? Uh, For me, it's Commissioner Gordon. Like, he has one scene standing up for Batman and refusing to pursue him. I love Bob Hastings as Commissioner Gordon, but I just feel like it would have been nice if the two could have had some type of like manly heart-to-heart chat where gordon was unknowingly giving romantic advice to batman while he's like talking about his own life or something like you know and, like it just connects for bruce and you know under the mask like something like that but it was just so little commissioner gordon it bummed me out fun fact bob hastings who voices commissioner gordon had previously worked with mark hamill before when they were teenagers providing voices for hannah barbera's i dream of genie animated series Whoa. Oh. <laughs> he was also on the 60s Batman series. 
Oh, really? Yeah, in the episode when Penguin uh, becomes a movie studio director. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, boy. He's in that one. That's awesome. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. What do I think this movie is missing? Now, keep in mind, this is something I've only thought about after dozens of viewings, so I don't think its absence is any detriment to the picture. But I do have to wonder why Andrea doesn't suggest going to Bruce for the money that her father needs. Mm. Yeah, while Bruce would likely object to paying off mobsters, it would have been interesting to see how we would have approached this conflict since this was prior to him becoming Batman. And it could have added more drama if he refused and that her dad gets killed. She could have blamed him. Yeah. I think it was pride. I think it's pride. That's why she wouldn't have done that. Like she didn't want him to know that her family was, you know, so ingrained in the mob and everything. I think it's a, it's a, it's a pride thing and maybe a, a bit of embarrassment. So I, I, I could see why they didn't go that route. Yeah, Who introducing knows? that element could have complicated things, especially for the third act when we get that information. So, yeah. like I said, I don't think it's a detriment. It's just something I've noticed after going to the fridge multiple times. <laughs> I also think that if this movie were made today, there would be a much longer fight between Batman and the Phantasm, as it's shockingly brief the time that they spend fighting each other. Yeah, I could see that. I, I understand that. Now, where does this rank in terms of overall Batman the Animated Series episodes? Like, is this somewhere in the middle, lower tier, or upper echelon for you guys? This holds the maturity and sophistication of the series easily toe-to-toe. And with the advantage of the movie format to tell a more mature story about Bruce Wayne, I appreciate that it relies on personal stakes on a more intimate scale rather than the fate of the whole city is at stake, like, say, a summer blockbuster would have done. The things that are important in this movie are important because they're happening to Bruce Wayne, who we're made to care about. And I, I respect that they told a mature story ultimately as a tragedy with hints of off-screen sex and violence, as opposed to more recent DC animated movies, which feel like they add in excessive language, violence, and innuendos to justify a PG-13 rating in a feeble attempt to be taken seriously by the grown-up market. Yeah, like, to me, like, I I put it, like, at the bottom of a top five list. You know, to Stephen's point, it would have made a great two-part episode if they trimmed it just a little bit. So I, it's kind of like Heart of Ice at the number one spot, and then, you know, down at the bottom, you would put Mask of the Phantasm, you know, just in terms of they're both very dramatic stories. You know, they both involve lost loves in a certain respect and things like that. So there, there's a lot that's very similar, but there's just too much padding in my mask of the phantasm i'd put this around like 2025 for me (laughs) there's a lot more that i like than this fair rankings fair now speaking of being fair what's an objective grade you would give this movie if i were gonna rank solely on writing i'd give it a perfect a i still do think the movie is deserving of it as a whole but the writing really is the strongest part of it yeah it's a b plus for me it's like a well-written movie some great action scenes the joker comedy is fantastic but it just it drags and it's so it's not one i'm clamoring to re-watch over and over so that it loses a little bit for me i'd give it a c i i I felt a b i felt a b was probably a fair grade now where does this joker rank on cinematic jokers 
this Joker is much more violent than we've seen him on the show. It's interesting that for a feature film, as we've mentioned, the Joker is a secondary antagonist rather than the primary instigator. I do love how when we first meet him, when Sal goes to the abandoned World's Fair, it feels like he's awakening the Joker like a sleeping bear, unaware of that he's about to unleash a terrible force upon the world. Yeah. And he does make quite an introduction, but first shooting down singing robots, execution style, just for annoying him and then minutes later he kicks a robot dog just for a laugh (laughs) (laughs) i'd say you know hamill's joker has a mirthful menace to me that i never got like nicholson's performance is a little bit hammier and ledger's was quirkier and whatever jared leto gangsta weirdness was going on in suicide squad so phantasm joker like just in terms of like my enjoyment he really is my number one just because everything that's wrapped up in the series but then now he gets to join the cinematic jokers like he just wins for me I'd put Ledger number one, Nicholson number two, and then Hamill, and then whoever the hell else did it recently. <laughs> Joaquin Phoenix, right? Didn't yes, he do yeah. it? Ah, yes. yes. That was terrible. Uh, and uh, <laughs> yeah, and I didn't even bother with Jared Leto because that you skipped crazy. over your boy Cesar Romero. I I never skip over Cesar Romero. I thought we I thought we established in the last one that we consider that more of a TV show. Okay, fair. But there, but you you made the argument that Batman sixty six the movie did have some sort of theatrical release. So I don't okay. know. Okay, Ledger. Romero, Nicholson, Hamill. <laughs> okay, fine. Okay, now where does Kevin Conroy rank on your list of big screen Batmans? It is so hard to rank Kevin Conroy as Batman uh, just on the performance in this movie since you know he he's Batman so briefly. And most of his best moments are when he's standing stoically or evading the police or fighting the Joker, because that comes through on the animation side. Uh, His best performances in this movie are as Bruce Wayne. Keaton is still my favorite Bruce Wayne or Batman. This is why we're just, friends, Adam. Yes, I mean, I, I knew I, you would have my back on that. Conroy is great. I just, I don't 100% buy his vocal performance being torn, you know, between love and his mission of vengeance. Like, it just, it gets a little too melodramatic for me in this movie. It feels like a Juilliard student, you know? It doesn't quite have the, the angst behind it, I would expect. But my ranking of Batman performances just overall, Michael Keaton, Adam West, Ben Affleck, Christian Bale, Conroy, then Kilmer and Clooney. So. Batfleck above? Dude, oh I love I, Batfleck. Oh my god. I am seconding that vote that Adam just put out there. I I agree with that 100%. Oh. Oh. Not Justice League as much, but every other performance. <laughs> and his cameo in Suicide Squad is pretty great, so... <laughs> Honestly, Ben Affleck is the best part of Batman v Superman. Like, that, that wow. warehouse That's scene... A, what a high compliment. <laughs> and he's killing those guys man it is fantastic wow i like the end credits because that minute was over (laughs) that was my favorite part you made it that far you made it all the way to the end i had to 
<laughs> Fun little okay. bit of trivia about uh, Kevin Conroy in the role of Batman. Uh, he landed the role because of his distinction between the two personas in his voice, uh, between Bruce Wayne and Batman, which was a trick he picked up from Bud Coilier, who voiced Superman and Clark Kent the same way for the Superman radio serials. Good trick there, Kevin. Well, actually, notice he pulls that out at least once in the movie when uh, he first meets Andrea in the graveyard. And, you know, he's been talking to her in his affable Bruce Wayne voice for the most part, until he mentions that he talked to his parents about a secret vow, and she asks him, have you kept your vow? And he switches to the Batman voice when he says, so far. <laughs> so Great far. little bit of characterization there. <laughs> okay, where would you put this movie in terms of Batman movies. Well, I, I rewatched Batman Begins before Phantasm just to compare the two Bruce Wayne origin stories, and the flashbacks in this movie are so much better than Batman Begins in terms of emotional investment in the characters, but, you know, basically I just prefer Dana Delaney to Katie Holmes. <laughs> but that being said, it's not a well-paced movie that keeps your attention. And like I said before, I'm not clamoring to watch it again, so it falls to the bottom of the list for me. Like, all the live-action films are more entertaining, even from a campy perspective, which ultimately are the kind of films I prefer to watch anyway. So, unfortunately, it falls to the bottom, however artistically complete I feel it is. Yeah, I, I, I would agree. I mean, I... I kind of put this, I like all the live action ones except the, uh, the Batfleck ones. Those would be at the bottom of any list of any movies I've ever seen. Uh, <laughs> ever. I'd, wa I'd rather watch Batman and Robin than this most days. Uh, I put it above Lego Batman movie. I would give you that. I agree. Eric, what do you think? Ooh, man, this is so. It feels unfair to compare it to the other live action movies just because of its pacing is so widely different that it doesn't feel like it matches somehow. Now, here's a question for you. If they did a Bruce Tim Paul Dini sequel to this movie, would you see it? I feel like that time has passed because so many of the people who are involved with this feature have moved on to other things other more interesting and better things certainly i love kevin conroy as batman but i'm getting kind of tired of how he keeps getting pulled back to do voices for direct-to-video features or tv shows i like the killing joke for example everyone was talking about how oh the definitive batman and joker are back together again but the characterization of batman in that film is so different from the animated series it's like oh it's conroy's voice but he's playing a different character in this iteration i feel like i would have much rather had some new person in that role instead for that part Okay. I feel like for me, if it was a direct adaptation of this story you say they're doing right now, Michael, then yeah. I probably would. Because this sounds like a really interesting twist. I mean, Batman and Catwoman are now married, and the old girlfriend is coming back into the mix as a villain. There is something to that, so I think that would pull me in. But otherwise, yeah, I don't I don't know what it would be like. Like, what, what would they do for a sequel? I mean, we might have to just do it on Sequel Quest on my other podcast, and we'll find out. Okay. <laughs> 
Actually, speaking of sequels, I've dug up some comics here that have the Phantasm reappearing. So Phantasm first appeared in comic book form in Batman and Robin Adventures Annual Number 1 from 1996. This was a comic book tie-in to the animated series. And the cover is amazing. It features a foreboding Phantasm on the cover, removing the mask to reveal it's the Joker underneath. And it is so cool. The story itself is called Shadow of the Phantasm, written by Paul Dini and features Andrea returning to save Bruce from an attempt on his life, which was ordered by Arthur, who has retained his Joker smile from his poisoning as and is attempting to lure out the Phantasm for revenge. It ends tragically yet again with Bruce and Andrea being separated. It's revealed that Andrea was separated from the Joker by falling debris before she could kill him and kind of takes the decision out of her hands, unfortunately. I would have liked it if we'd shown her making a decision not to kill him as this story fills in some details about what she's been doing since the movie, where she's been operating as a mercenary for hire, but insists she has not been a killer since then. It's a decent story, but just feels like a footnote in comparison to the original film, though it does help considerably that one of the original writers was involved. Okay. Phantasm appears again as a villain in Batman Adventures number seven from 2003 as just a goon for Batgirl to fight. The intended story was going to be that Andrea's mother, Victoria Beaumont, wasn't really dead but was running the Gotham mob as the new Red Hood, but the book was canceled before this plot could be developed. An older Andrea Beaumont appears in the Justice League Unlimited episode called Epilogue from 2005, where it's revealed she was an assassin working for Amanda Waller. She has no speaking lines in this movie, and it's a glorified cameo simply for fan service. Yeah, that's true. I remember that. Phantasm returned in the comic book series Batman Beyond 2.0, issues 13 through 16 from 2015 for a story called Mark of the Phantasm. It is both confusing and highly controversial. Phantasm is active again as a killer of killers and is targeting a man named Jake Chill, who is retconned into being Terry McGinnis's father's real killer, a la Sandman from Spider-Man 3. On top of that contrivance, there's a flashback story about how Barbara Gordon was pregnant with Bruce Wayne's baby while she was in a relationship with Dick Grayson. Yes, really. Okay. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> what is the legacy of this movie, do you think? Like... Now, the reputation of this film has grown through the years, I think largely because the kids who grew up with it held it in such high regard. To quote producer Michael Uslan from 2017's Hollywood Reporter article, Mask of the Phantasm is possibly the best Batman movie ever made. We disagree, but that's fine. Fair <laughs> enough. It certainly has the best story. We got Mark Hamill. Kevin Conroy and Dana Delaney together for a 20th anniversary screening a couple years ago. We brought it back to the big screen in Santa Monica. It was an amazing thing. The place was packed. That movie will always stand up against the test of time 
and it's a testament to the quality of the show that Bruce launched in 1992. Overall, I think like the legacy of this movie is that it was really one of the things that, for those who knew about it that was going into the theater, it kind of raised even more awareness to the animated series, even though it kind of short-lived big-screen premiere. And it shows that you can take an animated story and play it very serious and play it with a lot of nuance and really derive a, a true story. Yeah, I agree with that. I would also say I think this was a movie, movie for people a few years younger than we are, Michael. Like my brother-in-law is about 10 years younger than me. Mm-hmm. And to him, this is, you know, he gave me his VHS copy recently. This is a movie that he watched a lot. This movie got a lot of play. It was on HBO quite a bit. Uh, the video was widely available. So I think it just became a movie that that kids had access to, and that's why it grew in reputation as a Batman movie. So that's my take on it. I think it. I think it. You know, the younger generation, younger than us, really latched onto this one. I I would agree. Uh, yeah, I think it's telling that the film really blossomed in TV and video, a space where people can watch the film more personally and closely because the story itself is much more personal and intimate. So I think it actually is better on video and TV than it really would have been even if it had been a hit in the theaters. In my opinion, the legacy of this movie is reflected in the absolute glut of Warner Brothers animated films being produced mainly straight to DVD based on DC Comics characters. I mean, the output from that studio is insane. Just so many, so many, and I have always felt that they are of very middling quality, but I think what the they're accomplishing now is maybe based on the disappointment of this film and what it wasn't able to accomplish in its time. Again, to reach out to an older audience to accept animation, which the story was certainly there. If it had been done in live action, people probably would have accepted it better. But this is, you know, what it is. Cartoons are for kids, and so they weren't interested. And so I think that legacy has, again, birthed this new generation of films for better or for worse. Some are good, some are not so good, but it definitely was the groundbreaker for a full-length animated feature featuring comic book superheroes. So for that, we have to give it props. Fair point, fair point. So you know, to kind of bring this all home now, I, I, I know like I personally really enjoyed rewatching this movie, and you know, I, I got through it in one sitting, which. Nowadays, for me to get through a movie in one sitting is, is pretty rare. And uh, <laughs> in, in comparison to the four-hour you know, Zack Snyder Justice that's coming out in a couple of weeks, I'm like, it's going to take uh. me about four years to get through that four hours. But I really enjoyed this movie. I, I'm glad I rewatched it with you know a 2021 perspective, and I'm glad we're talking about it. And if you haven't seen this movie, you could find it on HBO Max. You can find it on iTunes if you want to buy it. Uh, I, I highly recommend it if you like Batman, if you like the animated series and you haven't seen this, to definitely check it out. And, you know, we're going to be doing a lot of cool stuff on 90 Super Cinema. We're going to be doing next month, I think, is Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Is that what was voted on, Steven? That's what won. Ooh, so we're going to be doing that next month. This is going to be really, really exciting. Michael, and... do, you, do you love being a turtle? 
I guess I do. Sure, yeah, fine. You gotta yell, "I love being a turtle." I'm not. I'm not yelling. I love being a turtle. Then you can say, "I made a funny." I oh yes, you. People gotta pay for that. Yes. Yes. You want to hear me yell? I I love being a turtle. Sign up to Patreon, <laughs> patreon.com slash wizardscomics. We've got tons of content coming out, really cool stuff. You can also see my destroyed action figures to the lengths of You Can't Believe. You can get your episodes of our Wizards, you know, proper episodes, uncensored, me fully cursing without bleeps or whatever, a week ahead of time. We can see some really cool like YouTube videos we're putting out or like videos for Patreon. And each month we're going to be doing like a wizard hang where like we can like geek out and just talk about our personal nerdiness and things we like. And I think we're going to be showing this month like our most expensive collectibles. So I got to figure out which one of mine I'm going to be brave enough to take out of my display case and showcase in front of my computer and like not give my home address. I don't get robbed or like, you know, (laughs) See, yeah, don't, don't take out Action Comics number one. I know you have that. Dude, if I had Action Comics number one, I would not still have a job right now. I would have sold that sucker a while ago yeah. and called it a career. There you yeah. go. Nick Cage would have bought it. Uh, please, you can have it. Give me a million bucks or five million or whatever. See ya. Enjoy. <laughs> but as always, you know, thank you so much for listening and checking us out. You can also check us out on our T Public store and get some cool merch. Hopefully soon we're going to have my our website up. I'm trying to get all that straightened out and getting that rocking and rolling. We'll have some cool content there as well. But for Steven, for Adam, Eric, thank you so much for joining us. The things that I learned tonight I didn't even know existed, and I find that really interesting. It, it It's scary because I usually go to get all that knowledge from those other two clowns I talk to weekly now. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time. I am the knight. Take it, Tia. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.